So it's a real privilege to, be, to have been invited to, to speak on this really important topic that I hope will move the discussions and the practice of widening participation forward. It is a real privilege for many reasons. Um, thank you. Uh, one, that it's something that resonates re on a very deeply personal, messy, complicated kind of way for, for me. So hence, what you're about to hear is a bit blah, but the blah is important. Well, if you don't, if we can't find the PowerPoint, then it should be in, in your pack and you can read it in an old-fashioned kind of way. I'm happy, you know, technology, technology. So it's very odd for me to be sitting here sharing poems with you. Um, because a year ago, I worked with Rachel and Rich and Becca, and it would have been unthinkable for me to sit in this room sharing poems with you as a civil servant and a policymaker in widening participation. So I had thought that I would have um, talked to you about how, well, there isn't a divide, and actually widening participation should be the practice of what doing academic work um, could or should be. And then I thought how odd it is that I'm sitting here sharing poems with you, and I couldn't have done that a year ago for many complicated reasons. And that oddness matters because there are very many important, practical, material, political, ideological differences in a job description, in a job title, in where your office is, in, in, in an institution. Um, so that's kind of where, what I'm thinking about. And whereas I'm sure my colleagues are going to provide you with really deep insights and practical strategies and good evidence about working across different um, zones of knowledge and experience, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to give you poetry. And with that, it's an invitation for you to sit and stare out the window and think about your back pain and your holiday and your bills and new adventures um, Think about something that you didn't think you would think about. Think about something that you're not supposed to. That's a, a gift of poetry. To speak about um, bridging the divide between practitioner and academic is to begin to speak about how widening participation is formed, informed, and performed within higher education. It also asks questions about who speaks for widening participation and, perhaps more critically, who listens the topic of today's discussions asks serious and I think very timely questions about how the different work and so the different workers of higher education are valued differently in different contexts. Today's discussions will, I hope, recognise and value that there are different expertise and different knowledges and different experiences happening in the context of widening participation and that those different knowledges can inform and learn with each other to support greater understanding and transformations in the field. And I'm thinking about the issues of bridging divides between practitioners and academics with poetry, because poetry allows me to hold divergent, di diverse, divisive, and potentially oppositional things, whether they're ideas, words, behaviours, or job descriptions, together in one place. The word poetry carries its root on its back. The ancient Greek word poesis holds within it connotations of making and um, critically making with, making with another, whether that's an object, a god, the air, spirits, wh whatever. 
and attending to a word's roots can help that word grow. Understanding poetry as a form of relational making can serve as a mode, as an invitation to think differently, to think more, to think better, and critically to think more compassionately about all of the work of and for widening participation that we do. For me, poetry makes room for things that are both and. Poetry can make room, however fleetingly, for more than the either-or decision of opposites. And within the discourse of widening participation, making room, which can collapse tensions of opposites and those barriers of exclusion, seems like a very good place to start. It is, in, it is through making room for our differences that different ways of working, and in particular different ways of working with each other, could be realised. And you can attend to your, your, your slides if you have them, but it's that one with a nice picture of Frank O'Hara and some uh, words. Is it coming? Brilliant. As if by magic. Thank you, Becca. Um, Frank O'Hara was, among many things, not least a cool dude, as I was telling Rich this morning, both a poet and a curator at the um, Museum of Modern Art in New York City. He wrote poetry on his lunch breaks and anywhere else he could. And he was very much part of the scene of artists, musicians and writers working in New York during the mid-20th century, so 1950s, 1960s particularly. His poetry draws on this avant-garde milieu and is infused with a deep appreciation for the everyday. Ordinary city scenes become transformed into camp utopian moments, which in the turn of a sentence are brought swiftly back down to earth. Thank you, Becca. Um, people, relationships between people, are never too far from the page. Indeed, in his witty, provocative manifesto, Personism, a Manifesto, um, O'Hara explicitly, and it's deliberately sexually explicit, um, we, one needn't go into it, but it's, it's a little bit bawdy, um, situates that the poem belongs between two persons instead of two pages. As someone interested in words and how words do things to people, um, O'Hara's voice resonated and has resonated deeply with me for a long time. And the poem, Why I Am Not a Painter, encapsulates for me how O'Hara uses everyday encounters with people, with his friends, um, with artifacts, objects, pieces of art of the city to create a po poetic voice that is immediate, off-the-cuff, risky and open. <coughs> And in the um, context of this discussion, which I know is a bit odd um, to be talking about poetry in this room today, um, that poetic voice serves to illustrate how one's identity as something, or how one is identified as something, um, whether that's a painter, a poet, an academic, a practitioner, or a policymaker, um, how that's worked out on and through. It also playfully, I think, highlights how identities which seem different or oppositional can work alongside and with each other to support um, outcomes that don't look nearly as oppositional as they did at the start. I am not a painter, I am a poet. Why? I think I would rather be a painter, but I am not. These words shaped the very first paper that I ever shared in an academic context. I was trying to get to grips with how I felt a certain disease with my discipline and how this disease mattered to how I did my research. These words still resonate with me because I still don't know. I'm still working it out. And that uncertainty still matters to me and still shapes the work that I do. 
For O'Hara, it was poetry and not painting which gave him the freedom, the space to explore these I don't know feelings of identity and to make meaning out of, out of what he calls the so much more of words of how terrible orange is and life. That is, through poetry, O'Hara found a way to explore and share the meanings, the feelings, and the terrible moments of life. In the poetry of Chicana activist, playwright, and academic Sherry Moraga, poetry gets further complicated. It becomes a mode through which different and oppositional identities um, can find a voice to take up room together. And it becomes that which constrains voices and bodies which do not fit or easily align with ideas of what a poet and poetic voices can look and sound like. Moraga, writing as a working class Chicana lesbian in the US, disrupts entrenched hierarchical positions of class, race, gender, language, and sexuality, among other things, I think, that, that still constrain how poetry, and I would also argue how academia, um, is conceived and received. Reading Moraga's work encourages me, and I think actually more palpably, it forces me as a white English European woman to address where and how I stand, who I stand with, and indeed who I stand on. And it does so by, by reminding me that where I stand or sit or write is shaped by another's life, another's labour, and indeed another's suffering. From the staff who clean this room, to the people that built this table, to the electricity that heats and lights and connects this space to the wider world, we are always already in a relationship with unseen hands, unseen lives and unseen deaths. By starting with compassion for those who are not here, or perhaps rather those who are not yet here in this room having this conversation, we can begin to find ways to make holes in walls and make our work act as bridges in the gaps that may be already there already forming, however slightly. In the poetry, in the poem, sorry, It's the Poverty, Moraga works out how these compassionate and silent relationships can get easily forgotten beneath the demands of writing. It charts, charts a car journey made between a group of writers, and in it, the privileges of what it means to be able to write, to have and share languages, emerge in the image of the now outmoded but very nostalgic um, image of the typewriter ribbon. Writing costs, whether that is in time, resources, technology, courage, or one's family. One of the very ideas of what it means to be an academic, to be literate, is exposed to be something which limits some bodies and some other stories and some other ways of telling those stories. Reading it, I'm reminded that there are distant voices of mothers and monsters and mother tongues lurking beneath my liter literateness. I can't even say it and shaping my literature. It causes me to stumble, as it did just there. I find it hard to put into words. Moraga's poem reminds me then to slow down, to pause, to not assume that the language I use speaks for everyone or even every part of myself, to listen to the languages, to the words that are hard to hear and hard to say, and that may be monstrous and that don't easily take up room in the all-too-literate and sometimes all-too-fast world of the academy. Last summer, which I actually thought was this summer because I forgot that a new year happened, um, I worked with different groups of mothers in Bristol on a project entitled Making Mothers. Um, myself and a colleague, 
Dr Sam Thomas and Dr Maud Perrier at the University of Bristol, we worked together on this. Um, the idea was to explore how conceptions of motherhood, identity and work um, could be teased out through the use of fabric making. And it developed from a larger, more informal project and network that I've been working on in Bristol for a couple of years, exploring how making stuff makes rooms for different connections with material, whether that's text or people or historical artefacts and ideas. As part of the um, Making Mothers project, we were working with an academic. I was not situ um, in a role of an academic there. I was, I think the correct term on the ESRC bid was community <coughs> practitioner, I think, which was, I didn't realise that was my title, but there you go. Um, and we were working with the Single Parent Action Network and two different young mothers groups, um, the Hillfields Young Mothers Group and the Meriton School. Um, both of the, all of those different groups are in um, geographically, economically, educationally marginalised areas of the city um, of Bristol, which is itself a massively um, divided, not very accessible city, I think. Um, perhaps Tom will speak more about that uh, next. But um, what was interesting was part of the project was to support Maud um, to develop her working with com different communities. She, she's a a social researcher who has worked with young mothers throughout her um, research life, but never, I guess, worked with young, young mothers, so it's that working on, working with difference, and more critically to, to develop ways for her, someone else is calling, uh, develop different ways for her to embed uh, um, community work within her teaching curriculum. So it was, it was very an exciting project. Uh, we were careful to listen to the group leaders and to the existing facilitators of these sessions to find out what was needed by each of the different groups of women and what would be tolerated um, by, the, by the women. Testing boundaries was very important. Um, we've done similar sessions uh, in the past and we're quite comfortable with people coming in, coming out, people swearing, people smoking, people doing what, whatever. You need to have that and I think that's a really that creates angst, and I could see uh, Maud in the very first session being, it was very different uh, from the academic settings that she was used to. It was wonderful to see her become more used to, to that um, testing of boundaries. Um, and at Hillfields and the Meriton, we found quite quickly that uh, actually women are quite happy, young women are really happy to talk about pregnancy and labour particularly. Um, uh, the more gruesome or, or brutal aspects of labour, uh, as on the blue uh, picture, one can see a, a description of that. Uh, but uh, turning those stories into poetry was hard. It was as if poetry was not for them. It was a, it was a mode of thinking, a mode of doing that wasn't um, that was inaccessible. And so we cut up poems, we cut up words, and we encouraged the women to cut up poems and cut up words and play and um, transfer some of the discussions that we were having and the feelings that they were having into these small patches which could be used to create a, um, a more cohesive poem. And perhaps more importantly, we didn't care about the outcome. We were just said, we, well, um, it was that we are going to make this and it's going to be ugly and we, it, and we want it to be ugly and we just want it to be done. And don't worry, was, was our approach. And so the poems that may, were made during these sessions are messy, they're raw, they're held together by glue, 
and they hold together oppositional and paradoxical identities of how um, these young women felt at that time. And I think it can be uh, palpably seen at the ending of the Hillfields poem, which ends with, between the magical and terrified core, we met a balanced place. I love that phrase, it's just beautiful. What working with these women taught me was the importance of making room for and listening to messy stories, jokes, and experiences, and for making room for testing and pushing boundaries, making room for swearing, making room for pizza. Um, and I think especially if um, those feelings and stories and experiences are seen as a little too fleeting and messy to be um, seen as literate or academic. And it taught me to remember that the messy, paradoxical, painful, pleasurable, broken, healing, angry, loving, funny, rude, scared, silent, screaming parts of life that get brought into the classroom or the seminar room, and they do, um, need to be attended to as part of the institution of higher education, however fleetingly, and that that matters. It matters that we are all bodies bringing with us painful, complicated feelings. And it matters I, for many reasons. One of them, I think, is because they are so often seen as what must be left at the door, what must be um, put on the wall outside the, the wall or the bridge or whatever you want to call it outside of the ivory tower. You can't be taken seriously as an academic or, I, one imagines, as a practitioner if you're crying, laughing, bleeding, in pain or being rude. The work produced by musician and activist Akala teaches us more lessons about how asking questions about what counts as knowledge can be part of a politically important, socially transformative act. In his work, questions about how knowledge is made through and for the service of power structures that are shaped by less than innocent histories of imperialism and control emerge alongside personal narratives. In doing so, his work reminds me of the power that knowledge has to interrupt disrupt and reorient those histories if you know where to look, listen and read. And now we're going to try and find a, listen to a clip um, which may or may not work. So I'm looking at Becca with, with wide eyes. Um, if we can't find the clip then uh, then I can read it. But it's nice I think if you can hear, you get a full sound of the music and the rhythms, and I think it's just better. We could almost listen to the whole thing, but I'm sure there's copyright issues and not to mention time issues. Not for the old fat guys in offices and the girls love it. Ain't fair, you can't even be one of the coolest there. Anyway, that's enough kissing my own ass. Back to the more important task of being so shower. I got half the hood screaming, knowledge is power. And I ain't saying I'll change that. But I do know this for a fact. Right now, there's a root on your block with his hands on his boot. Space crew up, so he don't care. Don't care. That he won't hit nobody cool. It's blood, but the words go in. Open your shackles once that's happened, there is no going back. Would you stop to see what is really happening? Who the enemy you should be attacking is. So read, read, read. Stop on the block, read, read. Um, one could listen to it and I think I would advise you all to, to buy his music it's powerful and brilliant um, what that track and, and I hope that
um, touches upon is some really critical issues for widening participation around race and knowledge and power and how um, structures of power and racism work to make some bodies not seen as um, carrying knowledge. And then what that then does to issues of attainment, issues of belonging, issues of actually what the hell, what's the point of widening participation if it's not going to support wider social transformations. Um, it makes me think of also knowledge with a capital K and how knowledge becomes knowledge with a capital K at the expense of other forms of knowledge um, and indeed others and how it's assumed to belong to some people and not to others. And it, his work reminds me also that just because it's not happening in the classroom or on the syllabus doesn't mean it doesn't count and doesn't mean it doesn't have the, um, the ability to radically transform the lives of individuals or communities. That his words work across his own personal landscapes with all too silenced local and global histories act as a compassionate reminder that when we talk of knowledge and learning, we are talking of people. And in talking of people and how people make stories and share stories across time and space, we are, following the work of Hannah Arand, who I love, um, touching upon a certain view of politics, that the act and practice of living, um, living together and sharing stories, and that making room for another, making room for another's knowledge, and sharing, sharing that space, even if that space is a bridge, is a political act, and is actually at the very heart of what politics can come to mean. And it can be hard, I think, for those working with it within higher education to conceive of our position as a shared space and as one where we are not in control of knowledge, perhaps with a capital K. And the clue is in the title, we are dealing with higher education. Um, and that is to say, in our radically unequal world, higher is seen as better. And so we're already positioning ourselves, I think, in an unequal, um, uncomfortable pose. And so working with widening participation in mind, I hope, challenges this because it highlights how higher education is an ongoing, pro an ongoing process, something not done, something that needs widening and something far messier than perhaps some of us would like. And attending to, ha to widening participation has altered how I conceive of my own, how my own knowledge and expertise is made and what it does or could do in the world and with whom. And that means that I go and find out who in my institution I should talk to, whether that's the student union or the head of student services or whomever. I, I go and find who I want to talk to, learn from and think with to make work um, as meaningful as possible. And so, yes, widening participation is about widening participation to higher education and how that participation shapes lives beyond graduation. And in doing that, it does something to the very texture of the acad academy and how we behave within it and without it. Following the words of Mary Stewart writing 16 years ago, and I'm still not that this was in the year 2000, one can't cope with, with time, um, the widening participation is about challenging the academy to allow active participation from a wide range of communities and individuals who will help redefine the parameters of higher education itself. Why widening participation in this view is the active participation and making room within higher education of those and those ways of knowing that are not yet here. It is not separate from other um, social movements working to change what the world looks and feels like. It's another form. And 
there's something utopian about it, even if utopianism doesn't sit comfortably for a sector grasping at stability. To claim a certain utopianism to thinking, to the thinking and practice of widening participation is not, however, to disappear into an oblivion, although sometimes a little trip there might help. To paraphrase the words of late, the late José Esteban Muñoz, utopia can serve to trouble the present and ask pertinent questions about who or what is being excluded in the everyday practices we take for granted. It asks for a little bit more compassion. Compassion, another word carrying its root on its back, from a Latin word translated from a Greek word, sympathia, a feeling together which also has the capacity to heal. Elizabeth Bishop's invitation to Marianne Moore serves as an invitation not only to heal across time, sexualities, and the institution of poetry, but for Munoz to desire differently, to desire more, to desire better. I'm going to read just a bit because I like poems. For whom the crim museums will behave like courteous male bowerbirds, for whom the agreeable lions in wait on the steps of the public library eager to rise and follow through the doors up into the reading rooms. Please come flying. We can sit down and weep, we can go shopping, or play at a game of constantly being wrong with, priceless, with a priceless set of vocabularies, or we can behave, we can bravely deplore, but please, please come flying. With dynasties of negative constructions darkening and dying around you, with grammar that suddenly turns and shines like a flock of sandpipers flying, please come flying. Come like a light in the white mackerel sky. Come like a daytime comet with a long, enubilous train of words from Brooklyn over Brooklyn Bridge on this flat fine morning. Please come flying. This poem of a bridge is a bridge that connects the poet and the reader with another poet and a whole host of poetic, cultural, uh, temporal, geographic topographies and traditions. It uses a bridge to embody a connection of and as flight and movement, of friendship across different times, spaces, texts, tones and meanings. And so, over our, our own bridges on this fine, if not very cold, morning, let's all please come flying. Thank you.